Happy 2020 to all of our problematic women out there, and welcome to another edition of Problematic Women. Today, we're mixing things up. You can't see it, but we're actually in a dark studio where we're arguing whether it's a vibe or a mood. What do you think, Virginia? It's definitely a mood. It's a mood? I don't know. I feel like it's a vibe. We have this low lighting. I feel really calm. It's affecting my mood. (laughs) But it's affecting my vibe. Let us know. Maybe we're a little more relaxed and we're just feeling the episode today, but we're excited to start 2020. I'm your host, Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. I am excited to be here, Lauren, to be kicking off 2020 Problematic Women with you. We have a great show planned today. We're going to be talking about the Women's March that's happening this Saturday. Lauren, do you plan to go to that? So I am going to go on a girl's ski trip this weekend, mm. so I won't be there. Are you going to go? Well, you know, I also just so happen to be out of town. Darn oh, it. Oh, it. <laughs> so I don't get to go. I, I do think it would be kind of entertaining, though, just to go down and check it out, see what people are doing, read some of the signs. Yeah. So we're going to dive into that later in this episode. We're also going to be talking about Toy Story 4 and whether or not that movie is racist. We also share a great conversation with Jeannie Mancini, the president of March for Life. She talks a little bit about the march that's happening uh, on January 24th. And it's a really great conversation just about the history of the march and the pro-life movement as a whole. And as always, we'll conclude by crowning our problematic woman of the week. Let's get right into it. The day after President Trump's 2016 inauguration was a day that will forever live in infamy on this program, the inaugural Women's March. This Saturday, they're holding their fourth annual event, and the ladies are doing things a little differently this year. Instead of one, and I'm saying this in quotations, quote, large protest, they are holding a variety of smaller, more targeted events throughout the week, including why women lead on climate, reproductive rights, health, justice, and the 2020 landscape, and of course, fourth wave drag brunch. Usually held at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, this year's march will start and finish near Freedom Plaza around the White House. At the conclusion of the march, groups of Chilean activists will lead protesters in singing a song, which translates in English to a rapist in your path. After a large drop in attendance at last year's march and growing criticism, which we'll get to later, The 17 new and diverse board members are hoping to turn things around in 2020. However, with the change in location, it's a much smaller area, and pretty much no major press leading up to the event, I would say it's not looking good for the march. This year's theme is women rising, and the main issues the march is targeting are reproductive rights, immigration, and climate change. And of course, their biggest focus is really fighting against President Donald Trump. Virginia, what's your take? My take is that the Women's March needs to rebrand, needs to rebrand itself as just the progressive march. (laughs) To say that you're representing women when most of your issues really don't have anything directly to do with women, uh, it's a little deceptive, in my opinion. Um, But I, I really do feel like we're, you know, kind of from the beginning, we've just seen this mantra from the Women's March that is very, very anti Trump, very far left leaning. Uh, and frankly, just kind of angry. There's a lot of really upset women that don't seem to like things, uh, how they're going in, in the country, and they all kind of gather to be angry together. And I think we're just kind of seeing that continue to escalate every year. And with their priorities this year, I, I think it's discouraging that there's so many issues that as women, we should be talking about, we should be advocating for, and to focus on issues like climate change uh, that many, many people are focused on. As women, I'm not sure that that needs to be at the very top of our list. 
In on the main website of the Women's March, there's this quote that says, quote, women have seen serious attacks under our current administration, but have also seen just what we are capable of when we fight together. What are these serious attacks that they're fighting against? I'm not sure. I thought about that. And, you know, as we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, but jobs numbers are way up for women. They're doing great. African-American jobs numbers are higher than they've ever been. So these kind of complaints and this message of woe is me as a woman, I'm so under attack, life is so hard, uh, it feels a little little far-stretched. <laughs> And we're not the only ones who think the march is going to be a bust this year. According to the Daily Beast, only 4,300 people marked themselves going on Facebook to the event compared to 6,600 last year and 12,000 in 2017. The Washington Post wrote, quote, right after the election, it made sense for them to have this big march on Washington. But right now, nobody really wants another march on Washington. And then Dana R. Fisher, a University of Maryland professor who studies protest movements, said, quote, nobody needs another pink hat. Yeah, and I was interested um, just by those numbers because I think they're really telling that, you know, like <laughs> I love that quote, no one needs another pink hat. Uh, I, I think people are a little burnt out with the Women's March. I think they haven't really seen much positive come from them recently. They obviously had a lot of scandal with, you know, two of their co-chairs being accused and of anti-Semitism and making statements that are anti-Semitic. But we haven't seen a lot of good news come out of the Women's March recently. And most of the news that we've seen in the past year or so has been that two of their co-chairs were accused of making statements that were anti-Semitic. And the numbers, again, you mentioned the Daily Beast numbers. They also had in that same piece numbers saying that, you know, their very first march in 2018, that across America, there were four million people that marched that day. The estimates last year were only 730,000. So we've just seen this dramatic decline. It's expected to be even less this year. Honestly, if we weren't doing research for this show, I don't even know if I'd know the Women's March was going on this weekend in D.C. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. And in terms of the anti-Semitic uh, accusations, the Women's March really did too little too late. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, Carmen Perez and Tamika Mallory were accused of being anti-Semitic. Uh, they were dismissed from the board, but there was never any formal apology. It was kind of done quietly. It was that big tablet article that came out that really hurt them. There was also the scandal of all the money that they were fundraising. None of the money was really going down to the local groups. The They were trying to trademark the term Women's March, which is insane to me because they only represent less than half of the women in America, and they want to copyright this. So, yeah, I think you're right. Women are just fed up. They're fed up of hearing that the sky is falling, that, you know, they're under attack. And they're, they say, my life's pretty great and, and things are going well and I, I don't need to be angry. Yeah. And I mean, I think, of course, there there's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be things that as a society and as women that we have to work to overcome Uh but we really do have to look at, wow, how incredibly blessed we are in 2020 to live in America, to have the opportunities that we have as women. Um, it's really unlike any other country in the world, women uh, who, who live in America just have amazing opportunities. I want to talk about the final event that they're doing on the Sunday after the march is the fourth wave drag brunch. I don't how is this even part of any sort of political protest? Well, you know, I was really fascinated by this and a little infuriated because they're calling it the fourth wave drag brunch. So 
to me, that implies we're entering into this new season in the feminist movement, the fourth wave. We're doing that with drag queens. We're doing that with men who dress like women. So men are the face of the <laughs> men fourth, are fourth wave, wave feminism. feminism. Like, okay. Uh. So the very movement that began to empower women and give women a voice is now like, eh, we'll just give it to men that dress like women. <laughs> So don't fear. You do not have to worry about this march. You do not have to track it. We will take care of that for you on Problematic Women. Tune in next week. We'll go over kind of what the size was and what the vibe was at that march. All right. Let's talk for a moment about an issue that is of great concern to women that we need to be talking about. And that is transgender persons participating in sports, specifically men who identify as women participating in women's sports. This has become a very hot topic, a controversial topic in America. But now this matter is being taken up by five different states, Republican lawmakers in New Hampshire, Washington, Georgia, Tennessee, and Missouri have drafted a bill not allowing transgenders to participate in sports that differ from their biological sex. The bills are primarily aimed at high school athletics because college athletics really has uh, kind of their own rules that they abide by. So currently it is up to school associations to set most of these rules with about one third of states allowing transgender individuals to participate in sports with the gender that they identify with. The Republican lawmakers who propose these bills, as well as other advocates, argue these laws are necessary in order to ensure fairness, saying they are mostly concerned about female athletes who will have an unfair disadvantage against males identifying as females. But critics of the bill, and really any activists who stand with the transgender community, say that these laws are discriminatory. So, Lauren, what are your views on this kind of state legislation? I mean, is there any part of this that is discriminatory? Absolutely not. These are women who may depend on their sport to attend college, or they can't be men just off their biology. I will never run as fast as a man. I will never lift as heavy as a man. And some of these women uh, worked their whole lives to participate in these sports only to become 17 or 18, and then their spot gets taken by a man who identifies as a woman. And this is what our Constitution says, and it, this is federalism in action. There's a problem, and local governments are going to fight it. Yeah, and uh, Duke Law School did a really, really great study um, that concluded that there's an average of a 10 to 12 percent performance gap between elite males and elite female athletes. I mean, that's huge <laughs> to you know, automatically your competition is 10 percent better than you across the board. Um, that puts you at a huge disadvantage. And I do want to take a second to highlight the Daily Signal did a really, really great documentary last year. Um, Kelsey Bowler, our good friend, produced it along with our multimedia team. And they went up to Connecticut to hear the story of Selena Soul. Selena is a track athlete in high school. And Kelsey got to sit down with her and just hear some of her story. And we want to play uh, a little clip from that documentary as Selena is just sharing about what it's like to compete in events with transgender athletes. It's very frustrating and heartbreaking when us girls are at the start of the race and we already know that these athletes are gonna come out and win no matter how hard we try. Track means everything to me. I 
wake up every day and go through school just waiting to get to track, waiting to run, waiting to jump. Man, Selena's story, I feel like every time I hear it, it just kind of makes my blood boil because it's it's an issue that uh, you can see so quickly and and rapidly affecting all of women's sports. And as someone who who ran track myself, I I just can't imagine kind of that feeling of knowing from the beginning of a race, I'm not going to win. Like I can just go ahead and already give up. Um, Just really, really heartbreaking. Lauren, what do you think, though? is really at stake here. It's women's sports in general. If women don't have the space to be able to participate safely and where they don't have a severe disadvantage, I am obsessed with Orange Theory Fitness. I go like three to five times a week. I lift a lot. I run a lot. A man who doesn't work out could probably lift just as much as me. And I, I spend hours and hours and hours a week working on this. And, and you know, you, you cited the Duke study that men have a 10 to 12% performance gap. And if women aren't given the space to to play sports on a level playing field, women aren't going to play sports. You're not going to play a game when the deck is stacked against you. Sports are important to learn teamwork. Sports are uh, a way to college for a lot of folks who don't have the monetary uh, ways or the grades to get there. And it's just one symptom in our society, we're now looking at no sex segregated spaces, no female only locker rooms. And we're looking at really redefining what it is to be a woman. I mean, you hear stories all the time about men having children now, and it's not a man, it's a woman who decided to be a man, but kept her uterus and and her reproductive system. We have to be okay with the fact that there are differences between men and women, and that not one is better than the other or superior than the other, but that we have different roles, we have different giftings, and we have different abilities. And I, I think it's come from that place of being uh, so fearful or just so not willing to admit that, that now we're seeing issues like this arise, where it's, uh, you know, people that they're so afraid to say there are physical differences between men and women, and men can run faster than women, that while well, they would rather put men in women's sports than actually say that. It's really tragic. And I'll say it again for the folks in the back. You recognizing that there's a difference between men and women does not mean that you hate transgender people. You love society. We want what's best for society. And pointing out those differences does not mean you're not coming. I'm assuming you're not coming from a hateful place. You're just stating actual scientific fact. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we're all created equal. We're all loved by our creator. Um, But acknowledging the differences doesn't make us, uh, you know, less worthy, less of a person, less amazing. So All right. Well, we will be sure to keep you all updated in 2020 as more developments, I'm sure, take place on this issue. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Let's go ahead and take a quick break, though, because I want to tell you about one of the other podcasts that we have here at The Daily Signal. You know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you're a conservative who wants to stay on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. Welcome back. This past weekend, I finally sat down and I watched the movie Toy Story 4. I thought it was an okay movie. The plot wasn't great, but it had a lot of really cute moments. It was nice to see Woody and Buzz again, but 
I thought I had some harsh critiques for the film. However, the Hollywood Reporter had an article that way outdid any criticism that I did because guess what? They said the movie was racist. What? <laughs> Reporter Stephen Galloway wrote an article titled, quote, The Whiteness of Toy Story 4. And yes, the article is exactly as it sounds. Galloway calls the film's worldview a, quote, Eisenhower-era fantasy in its appeal to rich white people, but completely exclusionary of everyone else. The main family the story follows lives in a big, nice house in a utopian suburbia. Galloway criticized the lack of diversity, with my favorite line being a reference to, quote, a very white fork, which is incorrect. It's actually a spork, I believe. It is. Who is the most popular new character in the fourth film, Forky. Galloway feels so strongly that he chose not to share the film with his friend's five-year-old adopted African-American daughter. He writes, quote, if you're white and middle class as I am, if you drive a nice car and have a safe job, all this may seem moot. But not if you're the five-year-old African-American girl a friend of mine recently adopted. I was about to give her Toy Story 4, but I've changed my mind because it sends the worst sort of message for a child like her. Quote, you're an outsider kept at a distance from everything fuzzy and fun in American life. How terrible is that, Virginia? This guy is literally telling this child that she can't enjoy Toy Story 4, a movie about toys. Well, and I kind of wonder, like, okay, what part of American life does he feel like this little African-American girl can't take part in? Like the part where the family goes on vacation or they go to carnival and they go camping? Like... What is the, like, whites-only sticker that he somehow sees that is plastered over this movie? Like, okay, yes, the characters are white. There's also a lot of other characters in the film, most of which are toys who are like a green dinosaur <laughs> and a potato head. Like, <laughs> the main characters of this film are, are not human. Um, you know, and I, I really came to the conclusion with this article that I think... We we see what we're looking for. And if if you have your your racist glasses on and if you're always looking for, OK, how is this discriminatory? How is this racist? You're always going to be able to find something. Yeah. And to your point, this is a children's movie. This is not a commentary on American society. These are toys getting in an, in an adventure and like literally Woody will throw himself out of a moving vehicle and then find the toys 20 miles away. Like, none of this is realistic in the least bit. Yeah. And, <laughs> no, I mean, it was funny because he, he really talked in terms of, you know, this movie does not represent American life and, you know, the real struggles that we face. Well, first off, it's a kid's movie. Like, we don't need to be laying the realities of life on little kids, you know, at least not through their fun entertainment. You know, it, it's supposed to be uplifting. It's supposed to have a good message, which I did. I thought it actually had a really nice message of, uh, you know, finding your purpose in life and finding your identity. That was what I took away from the film. It was also a little creepy, but another story. Very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we have to recognize with so many animated films, it's not realistic. Like, it, it's all of these fantasy worlds, and that's why we love these movies, because it, it is a fantasy, and we get to kind of disappear from our own reality for a second, and we get to go live in another one. Virginia, I have bad news. What's the bad news? This movie wasn't just racist. It was also sexist. <laughs> <laughs> Further criticism by feminist writer Stella Duffy said the 
said the film was disabilist and misogynist in an interview with the BBC. She said, quote, OK, let's talk about the white feminism on display there. Oh, look, Bo Peep's a feminist. No, she's not. She's still going to fall in love. She's still going to have the happily ever after. That's not feminism. It's a woman who kicks off her skirt to reveal bloomers, had a couple of thoughts, and does some high-wire acts. And it's disabled. It covers all bases. It looks good, but Disney is supposed to look good. There has to be content to the story, too. So for a little bit of background, Bo Peep was rebranded to be less of a supporting actress and more of a main character. She helps Woody and kind of really takes on her own. I don't know what she's getting with that. Bo Peep can't be a feminist because she falls in love at the end. Yeah, I mean, that essentially seems to be what she's saying is you can't be a feminist and also want to get married, <laughs> which is really, uh, yeah, offensive in some ways. Like, really? <laughs> you can't have your happily ever after and be a feminist. You have to be miserable. <laughs> you have to live alone for the rest of your what? life. Uh, no, it's just really bizarre. Again, just like looking for, for what you want to see and pulling that out of. I mean, Bo Peep is this really strong feminine character. She actually saves Woody on multiple occasions. She's the one that kind of leads him on this long journey. Don't want to give away any spoilers if you haven't seen it. She always has the plan. She always has the plan. She's, she's the leader uh, in multiple situations throughout the film. And it's uh, it's not at all her kind of coming to Woody of, oh, I, I know I really need you. Or Woody makes a choice to kind of stay with Bo Peep and Bo Peep is like, great, <laughs> you're cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's crazy that the left can't enjoy one single thing like they can't enjoy a kid's movie so the movie isn't on disney plus or any streaming places i think virginia i paid a couple bucks to watch it i would recommend to wait till it comes out somewhere you can watch it for free and it's a kind of a feel-good thing you can do one afternoon yeah toy story 2 is still my favorite but (laughs) you know all right we're gonna take a quick break but when we come back we will be joined by Jeannie mancini what a great name the president of march for life stay tuned if you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. I am joined by the president of March for Life, Jeannie Mancini. Jeannie, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Virginia. Now, March for Life began in January of 1974, one year after the passage of Roe versus Wade. And, you know, March for Life really started out just as this small, peaceful demonstration, but it quickly grew into the world's largest pro-life event. The 2020 March is taking place on January 24th in Washington, D.C. Can you share with us what the theme is that you all chose for this year's March? I'd love to. And if it's okay, I'll just give a little bit of backdrop that Every year, we do a lot of, you know, thinking and discerning about the appropriate theme because with the March for Life being the only place where all of the different pro-life groups come together annually, it's an awesome springboard to message essentially about what we think are the, you know, most cutting edge, most pressing issues in building a culture of life. And so 
themes in past years have included adoption and noble decision. Um, another year, in fact, last year, we had pro-life is pro-science and really delved into um, the science behind embryology and some of the wonderful neonatal surgeries available, etc. So this year, our theme is life empowers, pro-life is pro-woman. And of course, this is the year where we celebrate the centennial anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which created a woman's right to vote. And so it's a great opportunity to go back and to look at the suffragists, uh, the early feminists, uh, the early female leaders who recognized the inherent dignity of women and the inherent dignity of the unborn were not at odds with each other, and they had a really good understanding about that. And so we're having a lot of fun with this theme, and we're excited to be able to uh, talk about that more next week. Absolutely. Now, who is speaking at this, at this year's March? <clears throat> We've got a great, great, great lineup, and, and stay tuned because there are more announcements to be made even tomorrow. Um, so we legislatively, we will welcome to the stage Representative Chris Smith, as well as a state representative, state senator as of yesterday, Katrina Jackson. Um, so Chris Smith is very well known. He's from New Jersey and just a stalwart on our issues. Um, Katrina Jackson as well is very interesting because she's one of the few pro-life Democrats. And um, in particular, we're so interested to have her this year because she was the author of the bill in Louisiana related to abortion clinic regulations that then became a law and now will go before the Supreme Court in March. And so she'll, it'll be very interesting to hear from Senator Jackson. So those are some of our legislative speakers, and there's a few more to be announced there. Um, we have Claire Colwell and Melissa Odin. They both have these incredibly inspiring stories. They, they both survived abortion, essentially, and um, their lives are such witnesses. And so they're going to share their stories. Um, and, of course, we'll link that very much to the Born Alive Discharge petition in the House right now. Um, we've got Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, Marjorie Dannenfelser, head of Susan B. Anthony List, a good year for Marjorie to speak with the theme. Um, another wonderful woman, she's a pro-life leader in New Mexico, Elisa Martinez. We also have a local pastor, David Platt from McLean Bible Church, a very well-known church here in the D.C. area, and he will be doing our closing prayer. Um, and like I said, we've got a few more announcements. And I should say, our favorite speaker, at least when we do our surveys after the March for Life, is almost always the young person that speaks, because of course, by and large, the participants in the March for Life are young people. And so our uh, one specific designated young person who's speaking this year is Catalina Scheider Galinanes, and she is from Oakcrest, a school in Vienna, Virginia, and she's going to speak about why she's pro-life. Wow, so many amazing speakers. I really look forward myself to hearing many of them at the event on the 24th. Now, people come to March for Life in Washington, D.C., from states all across America. What is that message or motivation that you are, are really hoping that marchers will take with them back to their home states and their communities? The March for Life is very interesting in that it's a place to come and witness and, and testify to the beautiful inherent dignity of the unborn person. And yet, ironically, for those of us who participate in the march every year, it's 
it's an opportunity for our own hearts and minds to be changed even more about this issue. And so I'll just give you a quick example of that and then try to, I know I'm kind of backing my way into the answer here, but um, I had a family member come and participate from out west last year, and it was the first time he had come. And he's always been pro-life, but, uh, you know, it was a, it was quite a sacrifice to come. He and his wife and one of his children came and had a really – beautiful time. I think it really was just his eyes were opened to the significance of the issue and perhaps his heart uh, was changed even more in the direction of life. And uh, while he has a, a very busy schedule and last year was having kind of a, a uh, I guess you could say a break from work for a few months as he was changing to a new job, this year uh, he's again coming because he realized how important it is. And uh, it, it's like, his, again, his own experience was changed and then he wants to do more in his local community. So what I would say is that the March for Life, while again, while it's a, a moment to testify and to, to give witness um, in the public square about the unborn, it also changes our own hearts and our deepest hope as those of us who who pull this event together is that marchers go back home and make a difference in their local community. Because if it's just, you know, one day that we're coming together and a really motivating and exciting day, then we're not doing our job. So the the job is really, you know, recognizing that we each have a role to play in building a culture of life and to do that in the area where we are planted. And speaking of working in that area where you're planted, you all have also launched a number of, of marches across America in different cities. Why did you feel that it was important to not just have the National March, but also to have marches in states across America? Well, a few years ago, as a pro-life organization in D.C., we found that we were being tapped to do all things. Um and there was a bit of, I would describe, mission creep, even within the organization, not, not, a, not terribly so, but it allowed for um, some reflection. After, after some time, I think we were all a little bit burned out, and it, it gave us an opportunity to really, you know, look interiorly as well as, you know, look up, up to God and, and really think about, you know, why was the march created and what do we bring to the pro-life movement and to building a culture of life that no other pro-life group brings, and, and so what can we do um, better and, and more of to end abortion, to change hearts and minds so that abortion is unthinkable in our country? And simultaneously, if you were to ask us, what is the single thing that you get the most calls about or the most questions about, it was to help groups start marches in their states and in their local areas. And we didn't really have the bandwidth to, to do that well. I mean, we had sort of a, you know, a, a, a very informal toolkit, and we'd, you know, take calls and try to give technical assistance. But for the most part, we weren't really staffed up to be able to help groups do that in a, in a powerful way. So all of that led to a lot of soul searching and, and deep discernment with the board. And we decided to try as a beta test um, a state march program. And so our first state march was in Virginia last year, and it was in April, and um, we brought out over 7,000 people for it, and, you know, we're, we're the lead story on um, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, with which is the local uh, Richmond paper, and um, I just, for, for so many reasons, it was a huge success, and we didn't quite anticipate that it would be as big of a success as it was, so um, this year, we'll have a second march in Virginia on February 13th. We'll also have a march in Pennsylvania, that's on May 18th, and a march in Hartford, Connecticut, 
on April 15th and stay tuned for more announcements. That's so exciting. Now, I do want to take just a moment to ask you to share a little bit about your own pro-life journey and how you got connected with March for Life. Oh, well, thank you for asking that. Um, well, let's see. I, I've, I grew up in a Catholic family and social justice and just understanding human dignity was something that was ingrained in my understanding of life and, and the most important things of life at, at a very early stage. And, and I came, you know, I, I was one of five. So um, we loved life, you know, my family and, and definitely lived in a way that was very respectful of life. Um, however, so I went after college, I did a volunteer corps. I did something called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And I worked with young people that were in a crisis setting, they were in a youth crisis shelter. In, in a youth crisis shelter, excuse me, they were being uh, moved either from a, a situation that wasn't safe for them to be in, or they'd been found on the streets, and there was um, a long-term search for uh, more of a permanent home, whether that was going to be foster care or a residential treatment center or what have you. And so, my time working with those young people was very informative and. I grappled a lot with the deeper questions about would it be better, you know, if some of these lives hadn't been born? You know, is it unfair to bring some lives into the world when there's such a difficult scenario and such, you know, heavy crosses that these these people carry that nobody's ever really meant to carry? Um and so anyways, I did a lot of sort of introspection and and um and I came out on the other side, you know, really recognizing that every life is a gift. And, and I guess realizing with humility, who am I to judge the value of someone's life because they've had some hard things happen to them. And um, so, you know, and then along the way, I've had different experiences, obviously, in life. I mean, for certain, one experience that's um, really been, I guess you'd, it, it's, it weighs heavily on my heart, is two people very close to me when I was in college decided to have an abortion and they didn't tell me before they told me after and in 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 some cases it was a long time after um and just hearing the pain that they underwent was so sad and and even this terrible guilt that they were experiencing and of course there's always hope and healing and I should say that to anyone listening to your podcast anyone who's been involved in abortion there's so many wonderful groups and, and people to speak with to find hope and healing after having been involved in abortion. But I just realized personally through these people who were close to me that women deserve so much better than abortion. And it was just, I guess, the lived experience of what I'd always believed, but I saw it in a very sad reality in, in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then each along the way, there have been, you know, many different I guess you could say epiphanies throughout my life. Um, and you asked how I ended up getting to the March for Life. So this is a very long-winded <laughs> way of answering that. But um, I was, uh, I guess, about eight, eight, about 10, 10 or 11 years ago, I was working with Family Research Council, and I was their pro-life spokesperson and just loved that job. It was so fun, and I got to do a lot of policy analysis, which is really what I love to do. And um, so a few years into that job, that I was asked to join the board of the March for Life, and I did, um, you know, expecting just to to be a board member for a period of time. But I never really made it to my first board meeting without a major happening, and and that was that the founder of the March for Life, Nellie Gray, passed away before I went to my first board meeting, 
And so my first board meeting was an emergency board meeting where we were um, coming up with a plan for how we were going to continue the march. And um, so I, in, in a short-term capacity, I and another board member, Patrick Kelly, took on the leadership, and we thought we'd, um, you know, we had our plans for how that was going to happen, and um, here I am, seven and a half years later, still working with the March for Life, and, and lots has changed over that time, but it's just been a big blessing. Certainly. It's so neat just to hear that background and your story and kind of see how all those pieces came together. It's really, really neat. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, in increasingly, unfortunately, we are seeing an attitude among the pro-choice movement that's really not only pro-abortion, but advocates flaunting abortion. And, you know, we see this through the Shout Your Abortion movement, uh, examples like uh, actress Michelle Williams and during her award acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. And, you know, we could go on and on. But what should the response of pro-lifers be to this really blatantly pro-abortion rhetoric? Well, hmm, I think a, a couple things. One is to just have great confidence in what we believe. So, you know, to, to remember that reality is not arbitrary and that calling something um, a, a certain, you know, name or saying that something shouldn't have stigma or shame or, or what have you doesn't make it so. Um, abortion whatever you're going to call it, and with if you're going to shout it, if you're going to you know, tell your story about it, et cetera, abortion always takes the life of one and, and most frequently wounds the life of another. And so calling it something different doesn't change that reality. Um, and so I think just to A, recognize that, and then B, um, and this might sound a little counterintuitive based on what I just said, but to, to take a, a very merciful approach. I mean, Look, we are in a culture of what I would describe as the walking wounded because so many women and men have been involved in abortion and that very much impacts their response to these kinds of things. There's so much woundedness around it. And so I think, you know, approaching any conversations about this topic with a lot of mercy and love and tenderness is critical. Um, and and just to continue to, to I, I feel that we don't ever have to uh, kind of twist someone's arm behind their back to agree with us because we should have so much confidence. Life is inherently beautiful, and the pro-life message is so positive and attractive, and so we really just need to show it for what it is instead of, you know, again, kind of twisting someone's arm behind their back if they don't agree with us. Um, and, and conversely, the more that we understand about the abortion industry and even abortion procedures, it's dark. I mean, it's really, really dark. And so to the extent that we can show that reality for what it is as well and certainly try to prevent people from any kind of pain and loss of life, um, I think that's important, too. President Trump is often referred to as the most pro-life president in history. Looking back at his first three years in office, what to you are some of the most notable pro-life victories of his administration? Oh, that's a great question. So in terms of really, you know, creating pro-life policy, I would agree. He has done more for the pro-life movement than any president when it comes to enacting policy. So um, because of my job, I have to just start by talking about the March for Life. So 
um, prior to the Trump administration, we never had a president or vice president of the United States come to the march. In fact, a speechwriter once told me, and this was a former speechwriter, that presidents were counseled to go to Camp David around the time of the March for Life because they didn't want to be photoed with, you know, some graphic images or something like that. And so, I mean, there's almost been a, a real fear um, at top levels to associate with something this important. And We've seen the opposite from this White House, and it's been incredible. I will never, ever, ever forget, you know, one week after being inaugurated, there was the vice president in person at the March for Life and Kellyanne Conway, who'd, you know, run a successful campaign. And uh, that was, again, the first time, it was a historic moment because it was the first time ever in the history of a march that a standing vice president had come and spoken in person. And then the following year, President Trump addressed the marchers about a mile away from the rally. So he was in the Rose Garden, and there were a couple hundred young people there in the Rose Garden with him. And, and on big jumbotrons at the rally site, we broadcast that live, and that was very exciting. Last year, again, we had Mrs. Pence and the vice president. So it, it was, you know, it's just been incredible to have that level of um, support from the administration. But in terms of amazing policies that they've enacted, Gosh, there's been so much. One of my personal favorite is the Protecting Life and Global Health policy um, that had been formerly called the Mexico City policy, but that's been reinstated and broadened. Um, well, another favorite, of course, would be Supreme Court uh, appointments, nominations and confirmations of both uh, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and then all of the excellent, excellent judicial nominations, I mean, at the appeals court and the district courts. I think there have been over 218 of those. I don't have the number right in front of me, but it's, you know, it's, it's high. Um, returning Title X funding decisions to the state, launching an investigation into Planned Parenthood. I mean, there's again and again, there have been so many really, really great, great things. Yeah. Well, and just earlier this month, over 200 members of Congress signed uh, an, an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to reconsider Roe versus Wade. And like you mentioned, we've seen you know all of these great new policies and legislation come out of the Trump administration. We've also, though, in 2019, did see some really devastating uh, pro-choice legislation push forward. So what do you think we can expect in 2020? Oh, it's a great question. Um, well, I, I think that some of the things that we need to think about are, first of all, the election. And the March for Life doesn't endorse candidates, but we do educate. And I think that that's, I think that elections matter. I know, you know, having worked um, in the office of the secretary at HHS and seeing all of the policies change, I was there during the Bush administration and then in the beginning of the Obama administration, I just have to say the pro-life vote makes such a difference. So elections matter and to prepare well for the election ahead because it's going to be a big year. That's one thing. And then I know that something that we are very much focusing on at the March for Life this year is the Born Alive discharge petition and, and just the, the Born Alive troops. So you mentioned that there have been so many extreme laws enacted at the state. So, of course, Illinois now passed the Reproductive Act, which makes it the sort of the most pro-abortion state in, in our country. New York, of course, did last year. Uh, Vermont passed a, a, another similar law. So, you know, essentially, um, it, it's just so critical that we're aware of these kinds of things and um, that we 
do as much as we possibly can to um, message on the truth about things like the Born Alive uh, discharge petition or Born Alive bills at the level of the state, fight the ERA, et cetera, et cetera. So in some ways, I mean, you ask the question, and it's a little hard to know. So the elections are in front of us. We have a mixed Senate and House, so it's hard to pass the federal legislation right now. Um, and then in the states, there's all sorts of different things happening. So to fight the extreme stuff, especially in places like Virginia, my own home state, and we're seeing the ERA is going to get voted on soon there. But um, to continue as much as we possibly can to um, pass good pro-life legislation, like, for example, the Born Alive Act, which any person with common sense would agree with. Yeah. And you recently co-authored a commentary for the Daily Signal titled, Early Feminists Were Right About Unborn Human Life. Can you tell us a little bit more about these uh, American suffragists? Oh, I would love to. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think that there is even one suffragist who was pro-abortion. Um, so we've got some fantastic quotes from, you know, for example, Alice Paul, who called abortion the ultimate exploitation of women. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was very uh, was very strong in her views on this. Of course, Susan B. Anthony, etc. But you know, these early female pioneers again knew that. Um, that a woman's capacity for fertility and motherhood wasn't a liability, but that it was a beautiful thing. I think they they saw um, men and women as being equal in dignity but different, you know, not having to do away with the part of them that can make them mothers. Um, so it's it's, you know, wonderful to look back and to see sort of this first wave of feminists and where they were coming from and their understanding of these kinds of issues and then to see sort of where things are today and how far we've gotten from that. And for any of your listeners who have an interest in that, I cannot highly recommend enough coming to our conference the day before the March for Life. So our keynote is one of my favorite speakers, especially on this topic, Erica Bakioki, she's a pro-life feminist and a legal scholar at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and she's got so much to say about this, and herself has um, a tremendous testimony and story of coming from a more pro-abortion feminist perspective to where she is today. And then <clears throat> we have an, just a stellar lineup of panelists, very much speaking to different nuances about this. So Sue Ellen Browder will be speaking um, she's an author. Uh, she she wrote a wonderful book uh, called Subverted. Um, now she's got a book coming out called Sex and the Catholic Feminist, and she's essentially going to go into um, this question that you just asked me: what the early suffragists said, and and a history of that. You know, she'll she'll re uh, read quotes and papers, etc. We also have uh, Christina Francis, OBGYN, who's the chairman of the board of APLOG, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, and she's going to talk about the, the consequences of abortion and especially the physiological consequences. We also have Mary McCluskey, who works um, with Project Rachel Ministry, um, helping women and men who regret having been involved in abortion. And then Brandy Swindell, who's the founder and CEO of Stanton Healthcare, named after Elizabeth Cady Stanton, of course, an early suffragist. So I highly recommend coming in and hearing about our theme. And how can our listeners find out more about the march that's happening in D.C. and then the state marches that are going to be taking place throughout this year? 
Well, follow us on all of our different mediums um, uh, with on social social media, and check us out particularly on our website at marchforlife.org. And you can count down the cow- the hours, like you mentioned, Virginia, right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Jeannie. We just really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. All right, now it is time for one of our favorite parts of the show every week, the crowning of our problematic woman. We want to start 2020 with crowning not one, but a large group of problematic women. This week's award goes to all working women out there. The Labor Department's December report showed that 95% of the net jobs added last month went to women. Now women hold more than half of all payroll jobs in the United States for only the second time in history, which I thought was really interesting. The only other time was during the Great Recession. And what a great way to start a brand new decade. Congratulations and nice job to all of our problematic women working out there who continue to demonstrate the strides that women have made in the workforce. So, Lauren, why do you think that this is so significant for us to see uh, this continual growth for, for women in the workforce? So to start, a rising tide raises all boats. So when women do better, society does better. But also, we're only 100 years from women getting the right to vote. We are less than 50 years away from women being fired for being pregnant. So on the show, we want to make sure that we make it clear that we think women who stay home are that is a great career, but also women should have the right to go out in the workforce. And I think this shows that our economy is strong and that women are being empowered more than ever to go out and find a career. No, it's just so encouraging to see that uh, that the opportunities that once were really only open to men are now 100% open to women uh, and that women are empowered to, to seek after those career goals that they have. Um, and like you said, Lauren, obviously we want to champion those women that decide to stay home. And if that's what you feel like you need to be doing and what you're called to, we applaud that. Um, but we also just want to say well done to women that have kind of continued to push to push the limits and to, to see jobs that they want and to go after it. Do you think this is one of the serious attacks that women are under from the Women's March? Definitely. Yeah. It's so threatening. So All threatening. the jobs that we have. There's too many jobs. Too many options. <laughs> Maybe that's the attack. It's too much winning. <laughs> Such a burden. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, we are going to close this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Overcast, wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.